Uh, today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 17, uh, verses 14 to 27. <coughs> That's Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 27. Uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, with you, there's a, you can find a Bible in front of the chair in front of you, and you can turn to page 772. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of, you, of your little faith, um, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shackle. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Next week, Sunday, is our last time we can uh, accept the shoeboxes. So if you haven't already, please um, do that. Put in your items. We showed three videos of the shoebox, Operation Christmas Child. And every time the video came up, first time people were like, oh, this is a nice video. And the second time is like, again? And the third time is like, again? But I wanted to give you a little secret. All three were different videos. Got them. And they were just, they were different videos. They had different links. The first one was at a minute 30. The second one was a minute. And the last one was 30 seconds and differently compiled. But just to remind you, it's like, uh, it's that time. And just to set up a little box so that you can bless some, somebody outside who, uh, who probably won't get something even close to the gift that you can put in there is not just a nice sentiment. Um, like the video said, what we want to do is we want to pray for those that are receiving the box because as they give out the boxes, they preach the gospel and the good news saying, the Lord Jesus Christ died for you, loves you, and if you give your life to him, you will be with him in all eternity. And so the gospel is being preached by the sharing of these boxes. So I encourage you to do that, and we can stack up the boxes here right outside the elevator. You can bring it any time this week, but next Sunday we're going to try to gather all the boxes and deliver it by Tuesday or Monday. Let's pray before we start. 
Almighty gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts, to your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I spoke about this a few times in the past, but why can't we just get along with some people? Why don't we just get along with certain types of people? And uh, I said when I was growing up, there would be some people that you wouldn't just like their face, and then you just get into a fight. Um, that's how it was. And I told my wife a little bit about that. And we are having this conversation. I said, there are some faces that's really hard for me to like. And then she said, that is so offensive. Please never mention this in public. And I said, okay. <laughs> there are some faces I just don't like. It's just the way you grow up. Uh, not women, uh, but usually boys when I'm growing up. You wouldn't like certain faces. And I try to figure out why I wouldn't like certain faces. And for the most part, it's people, boys, or when you're growing up, you don't know anything. But when you're growing up, people who front, uh, like they can you know, fight or athletic, but absolutely have no idea. So you show them. You beat them up and that kind of thing. And then the vice principal calls you. And then your parents have no idea because I never told them until this very moment right now, but there are some things that happen. You realize, and I start thinking, why don't you just like certain faces, and why do people think like that, and maybe you're not as ridiculous as me, maybe no one can relate, uh, but the truth is sometimes we, every single one of us, we just can't get along with certain types of people. Maybe you can relate to me. It's people that put up a front, that you know have never been in a fight before, that have never, never taken a punch, that have never been beaten down, but they think like they can beat other people down. And then so those people like enrage you. Or people who have a front in your workplace, they act like they know more than you, but you know they don't. They know less than you, but they're your manager. Oh, you know. <laughs> And so there are people that we all face, and then why can't we just get along with certain types of people? I think it's complex, but I also think there's a deep reason behind this, and this deep reason is actually quite simple. This section that we've read here is divided up into three parts in your Bibles. This is what happens right after the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ and his fourth discourse. Matthew has five discourses. This is the fourth one, right before the last fifth discourse, the Olivet Discourse. By discourse, what we mean is a elongated teaching. And so we see the transfiguration of Jesus Christ and then we see the fourth discourse, his elongated teaching, and right in between, we have three parts that Matthew is showing us. And at first glance, one may think that these three sections 
have little to do with each other, but if you've been going along with Matthew through Matthew with us, you know that this is not how Matthew writes the gospel. They are not independent stories mashed together, but it is a cohesive story with underlying themes that the reader would notice if you are paying attention and studying these portions of Scripture. This is why smaller groups are so good, and if you're part of it, maybe if you didn't like it, you didn't tell me, but there was nobody that told me, oh, I don't like smaller groups, but rather it was the complete opposite. I love smaller groups because what we get to do is we get to go over the Scriptures again, and we get to remind ourselves again the Word of God and admonish and encourage each other to live out the Word. Today we see this burger set up where we have the foretelling of Jesus' death in the meat section of the burger. The foretelling of Jesus' death is in the meat portion of this burger. And as we go through these verses, I pray that you will be able to see the underlying theme of the stories that precede the fourth discourse. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures or is epileptic. And he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. All three synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this particular specific miracle right after the transfiguration. There is a contrast that is being shown between the glory of the transfiguration and the disciples' lack of faith. Because of this contrast, it should give us pause and urge us to reflect Matthew's account, once again, is a shorter account, and if you wanted to find a fuller narrative of this story, Mark would have it, but Matthew's account, once again, shows that this event, this event is going to be told without a backdrop, like Mark, because he just likes to get straight to the point. A father of an epileptic boy comes up to Jesus and kneels. The word for kneel here is gonipteo which denotes fidelity to a king or a supreme being. What's interesting is this word for kneel is only used one other time in Matthew, and that's in chapter 27, verse 29, when the soldiers would kneel before Jesus to mock him, to ridicule him. They would put a crown of thorns on him, smash it in his head, kneel, this word, gonipteo, and yell, hail, king of the Jews. Those are the two times this word kneel is used in Matthew. On one hand, the kneeling is to mock and ridicule, but in this instance is to show entreaty or denote desperation. The contrast here is that you will either mock or ridicule Jesus, effectively rejecting him entirely, or you will recognize your depraved state of affairs and plea for mercy. Some may think that this point of view that I'm telling or espousing here is too extreme. Why can't we just accept Jesus as a moral teacher, a promoter of love, you know, a kind man? But if you're honest, what you really mean is an ineffectual man. Why can't people accept Jesus simply as a good moral teacher 
whom when we follow leads us to better lives. We get better houses. We work harder. Like there are studies done in, in, in the social sciences that Protestants and they, went, they just tend to work harder so they're more successful in society. Why can't we just simply accept Jesus as a good moral teacher? Well, the answer is the scriptures don't allow us to do that. Even from the very last few chapters, we see the revelation given to Jesus' disciples is that he is no ordinary prophet. He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. His face is shining like the sun with nothing being able to contain his glory. To say that you are the son of someone is to, in the very least, to denote that you are of the same substance or being. The son of a monkey is a cow. No, it's not a cow. It's a monkey. A son of a monkey is a monkey. The son of a human being is a human being. But Jesus isn't simply a man. He is God. This is the controversy that the Nicene Creed that we've read earlier today would speak against when it would affirm what we believe Jesus to be, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, meaning he's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father with what the scriptures testify of Jesus and with Jesus' own words claiming that he is God, Jesus is either one of two things. Jesus is either a lunatic, a cult leader, a liar to be mocked, or he really is God who is to be worshipped. It's Jesus that doesn't give us another option. Jesus doesn't go, you know what, you could just follow me as a moral teacher. If you believe I'm God, that's cool. But if you don't, you know what? Just follow what I say. He doesn't give us that option. This is what so many churches, liberal churches today, completely miss. He's the one that didn't give us the option. We're not the ones that go out to say God can do whatever he wants. He can save however way he wants. But we just want to believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one that doesn't give us the option. Jesus and the scriptures testify that he is God. It's to this Jesus that this man kneels and implores Jesus to heal his son who was suffering so badly. And we will see he will be thrown into the fire or the water by a demon to kill him. And Mark, once again, it's a longer um, record. However, the focus in Matthew's account isn't on the boy or the father. Where's the focus on? It's on the disciples. Because in verse 16, excuse me, in 16 it says, and I brought him to your disciples, and I could not heal him. Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go out to heal in chapter 10, but here in this chapter, they are not able to. And this is how Jesus answers. O faithless, and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
Jesus is clearly showing exasperation with his disciples, calling them a faithless and twisted generation. The phrase, how long, is repeated twice, not just once, twice to show this exasperation. Why is he so exasperated? And he uses two adjectives of force to denote it. The first is faithless. It's apistos. If pistos is faith, apistos would mean an absence of faith, like theism, atheism. Apistos means without faith, an absence of faith. So that's why it's translated faithless. The second word is twisted. Diastrepho. Diastrepho is a perversion. It's to twist something. To pervert something is to twist something as to distort what it really is. He says, faithless and twisted generation. What is the generation? Generation means the people of the time. Jesus isn't talking about some generational distinctions that we make like millennials versus exennials versus you know, baby boomers. This is not what the, the distinction Jesus is making. When the Bible says geneo or generation, it means the people of the time. And because faithless and perverted are juxtaposed together, it's to describe the people's failure at something. What is it? It's the people's failure to see the truth of who Jesus is. It's, to fa- it's the failure to recognize the person of Jesus Christ. And this failure isn't due to lack of evidence, but it is a deliberate ignorance. It is a willful blindness. And Apostle Paul also writes in the letter to the Philippians, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of, a, of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's talking about the world here. This generation means the world. This deliberate and willful ignorance is a characteristic of what is in this world, that what the world is guilty of because it is faithless And it is twisted. And this is why he says, how long do I have to be here with you? By Jesus saying, how long do I have to be here with you? It shows us at least two things. Number one, his personal disappointment with his disciples. Of all people, who should have known better? But number two, it shows his consciousness of a heavenly destiny and origin. This world is not right. And it does not deserve this kind of savior. I want you to remember this as we go on and continue on this passage. This world is not right, and it doesn't deserve this kind of savior. So in verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Here in one verse is this miracle, Jesus showing absolute power and absolute authority. He says something, and it is absolute. He rebukes the demon, and instantly the boy is healed. One verse is dedicated to that, and that's Jesus Christ. In verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he goes, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
The disciples would go to Jesus in private, perhaps because of their embarrassment of their failure, or because Jesus scolded them, or both. Why couldn't we do what you did, Jesus? I mean, they had their WWJD bracelets on and were confused when they couldn't do what Jesus did. You know what Jesus would do? WWJD, he would knock this demon out. And then you couldn't, so you fail. WWJD, fail. You know what Jesus would do? He would completely overcome this temptation. And then you fail because you couldn't overcome that temptation. You know what Jesus would do? He would, and then, man, I don't even know anymore. Fail. And then you take off the bracelet. And now no one wears that bracelet. I suppose the far better bracelet would have been WDJD, which is what did Jesus do? Why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon, though? So Jesus starts to explain. It's because of their little faith. The word here is oligopista. We talked about apista. This is oligopistia, which is used when the disciples are freaking out in the boat. And right before Jesus calms the storm, he calls them oligopistia. O you of little faith. Jesus again teaches the disciples the characteristics of faith by showing them it's not about the size of the faith. If it was, if it meant to say, O you of little faith, O you of small faith, meaning small, then why would he immediately clarify it by using a mustard seed as an example? A mustard seed is this small. O you of little faith, why can't you have faith this big? That would be ridiculous. He would look ridiculous saying that just as I look ridiculous going, all you guys, you guys have such little faith, you guys need this much faith. That's a ridiculous statement. So why would he do that? What are we working with uh, microscopic amounts of faith here? And he's just measuring, oh, you need 0.20 grams more of faith. Jesus What Jesus is doing is he is addressing the poverty of their faith more than the amount of their faith. And if you look at the account of Mark, Jesus tells them this kind of spirit can only come out by prayer. So what does prayer have to do with the quote-unquote amount of faith that Jesus is requiring of us to say move mountains? Many have taken it to mean that if you want to increase the size of your faith to a mustard seed level, you should pray. I believe that this interpretation is off. It's off. It's being this off that will lead us to the same failure that the disciples experienced. There is a reason why Jesus uses the words apistos and oligopistia in the same event. We as people will take the name of Jesus and use it like a magic phrase, claiming that there is power in the name of Jesus. Not because 
the letters J-E-S-U-S somehow hold some magic or power on their own or because the name inherently have power behind it or has power behind it, there is power in the name of Jesus because of the person of Jesus. When we have faith, we must take it to mean that the grounding and foundation of our understanding now shifts from a faithless and perverted generation or a faithless and perverted understanding to a foundation of faith and holiness. Do you have faith is more than do you believe. It means to ask, where is your foundation? Your whole understanding of life as once you knew it has shifted now from the world's view, the world's generation, the faithless and corrupted, the perverted generation, to now Jesus Christ. It's not the amount of faith. It is the object of faith. If you have faith, even the size of a mustard seed, meaning you have this faith grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, there is no mountain or obstacle that can stand in your way. When you think that faith in Jesus Christ means you literally get to fly around and shoot laser beams out of your eyeballs, is that faith? Isn't it about you becoming a superhero? Isn't it about you using the name of Jesus for your ends? And you go, Jesus' name, and then you start thinking like, this is my superpower, it's fireballs, and I'm shooting it out. Isn't it about you becoming a superhero? Shouldn't you feel shame for using the name of Jesus in that manner? Isn't it about you standing tall and garnering praise and adulation for yourself? You mean to use Jesus as an end to glorify the self, thereby perverting and twisting what faith really is and ultimately being bankrupt of the very thing you claim to be boasting about. But who hasn't imagined just being able to shout out in Jesus' name and being able to heal every disease, then being called a faith healer, a faith healer, ironically, having neither the quality of faith or the ability of a healer. So prayer, by the power of the Spirit and His Word, shifts our perspective from the self-centered, faithless ego to the one who is truly God. Prayer shifts our eyes to God, to Jesus. And in verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, now Jesus is teaching them this. And while they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they were taught to shift their gaze to Jesus, and now they're looking at Jesus, it's not about, how come we couldn't do that? I want to be able to fly around and shoot laser beams. When they shift their gaze to Jesus, because Jesus is now teaching them what faith is about, Jesus then tells tells them about himself, and what he has to do. He will be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. This is the middle section, the patty, the burger part of the passage, and it is classically known as the prophecy of the passion. Passion meaning the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. 
This isn't some small discomfort that Jesus will be facing. He is not saying he will be mildly inconvenienced. The word delivered is paradidomai, which is a handing over or turning over, and a stronger use of this word is a betrayal, and he will be killed. To be killed is to end life here on earth. Then on the third day, which is pretty quick, he will be raised, implying an outside force. He will be raised, an outside force to which the disciples would have no comprehension right now. And so he says these things, and it makes the disciples incredibly sad, greatly distressed. But the pericope, or the passage, doesn't end here, and it doesn't go right into the fourth discourse. Remember, the discourses of Matthew show us how Jesus reveal more of himself to, of himself to his disciples through his teaching. And there is one instance, one more instance, before he gets us into the fourth discourse, and that's the temple tax. And you're like, what's that about? And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he goes, yes. Peter says, yes. Maybe because Matthew was a former tax collector, he would have been more keen in observing this kind of incident. But there is a temple tax that is levied to every male Jew once they hit 20 years of age, and is shown in Exodus chapter 30. It, would have re it was required to for the upkeep of the tabernacle and now the temple. In Exodus, the tax is for a half a shekel, so a two drachma coin. And drachmas were one of the earliest coins in history. This two drachma coin would be equal to a half a shekel. So the two drachma tax isn't a civil tax, meaning something that the Romans would have enforced. People have misinterpreted this to be like, Christians don't have to pay tax. That's not what this is talking about. You completely missed the point of the story because all of a sudden Jesus is talking about his death and then he's like, you don't have to pay tax, guys. That's not it. In fact, if you're not paying taxes right now, you are sinning greatly. Pay your taxes. Don't go to jail. Don't tell me because I'll report you. No, the, the pay your taxes. But this is a temple tax which the male Jews paid. Women, children, and Gentiles did not pay this tax. A drachma was about a full day's wages, so two, two drachma was two days' wages. And because of culture, people wouldn't have gone up to Jesus directly saying, why don't you pay your taxes? But they would indirectly ask his disciples. It's a very Asian thing to do, which many of you aren't familiar with. Why do your parents blah, blah, blah? As children of Asian parents, that's what people would say. They would never go to your parents and be like, why do you blah, blah, blah? They go, why do your parents blah, blah, blah? And if you grew up here, the very Western answer would be, go ask them yourself. But in the Asian culture, it's not the way you did things. It would have tested, the reason why they do this is because it would have tested the mettle of your children or the disciples, the followers of the teacher. And when we would deal with, let's say, an Eastern cultured church, they would ask Chunzak, why does your pastor do certain things in CGS? They wouldn't ask me directly. They wouldn't come up to me directly. This would have had an added effect of testing Chunzak and his relationship to me. Let's see what kind of metal Chunzak is made up of. 
Peter, when he's asked, immediately just goes, yes, right? <laughs> because he's got to save face, right? In the Asian culture, you got to save face for both his teacher and thereby himself. But when Peter walks into the house of saying, yes, Jesus knows even before Peter says anything and asks him this really weird question. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Who does the king take taxes from? The family members or people outside of the family? And when Peter answers others outside, Jesus goes, then the sons are free. There was a group of male Jews that didn't pay the temple tax. These were the priests. However, Jesus doesn't compare himself to the priests. Instead, he gives the example of sons of a king. Of course the sons of the king are exempt from the taxes because the taxes go to the king and his family. What's the point of paying into yourself? The claim again, this is the remarkable claim. Jesus' claim of exemption isn't that of priesthood, which he could have used, but that of sonship. He is claiming to be God. And he goes, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. Here's the kicker, though. Not to give offense. He doesn't have to. But because he didn't want to offend these people, he prompts Peter to cast the hook and shows Peter this miracle. There's a gold coin or a shekel, which is a four drachma coin in the mouth of a fish. This would pay for Peter and also Jesus. This verse is rife with meaning. Christ is the one that shows us what Christian liberty is. Christ is the Son of God who is free from the law's demands. Nonetheless, he submits to them. For whose sake? He pays for him, but also for Peter. Paul would also later share how he wouldn't eat meat offered to idols as to not stumble those of weaker faith. What is the underlying theme of all of this? Jesus comes back down from the Mount of Transfiguration where you saw him in all his glory. And in that place, the three saw the preeminent glory of the Son of God. He sheds that glory, comes back down. But not only does he comes back down, he comes back down to a faithless and twisted world, an evil and perverse generation. We raged against God. The Bible says we are enemies of God. And the perfect one comes down to who? He comes down to evil people. We see that he would humble himself even to the minor details, the minutia of all the people's need from demon possession all the way to paying a tax that he didn't have to pay or do. But in the middle of it all, 
It's not just the condescension of Christ, but the utter humiliation that he would receive. Jesus is the antithesis of this world. He's not just someone better than us. He's completely different from us, so far from us that we would not even recognize who he really is. It's like if you needed to save a group of ants, and then you became an ant, and now you're conversing with the ants with your antennae, right? And, like, no, 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 right? and then you're like, I'm here to save you. Don't go this way because there's ant traps. And the ants are like, who are you? You're just an ant. They're like, no, I'm really a human. It's like that, except Jesus and the, the, the divide that he has between humans, the divide that we have with ants, is times two to the infinity power. You don't even get how far he came down. He's not just someone better than us. He's completely different from us. He's so far that we, could have, we have no idea how to recognize who he is. Even now to this day, we think as people, he owes us salvation. We think that we are owed salvation. That somehow God couldn't live without us. Like the answer, like this human had, could not live without us. That somehow God couldn't live without us, so he had to send Jesus. We think that we want to be saved. There is misery, hopelessness, sadness, depression, anxiety, confusion, and so on. And we want to be rid of those things without ridding the cause. We want to be rid of those things without ridding the thing that caused it in the first place. It's the gambling addict who thinks all of his problems will go away if he just had a little bit more money. Just like the disciples, there is deep distress because you still have no idea what it means to need a savior. Jesus is just another means to an end. And when he was on earth, we exacted our crooked and evil will upon him. But who is Jesus? He is God. It was from his mouth that creation began. The stars were aligned. And if you're listening to this now, you are listening to the word of God. There is a transformation that sparks what once only knew the self, what was once dead, what was once just dry bones in a valley starts to come alive. And bit by bit, bones come together, flesh starts to form around it, and the heart starts beating. The word of God brings us back to life. And in this side of life, our foundation is different from when we were dead we become more like the one who spoke life into us. So what's the underlying theme from all the way to the beginning? I don't like your face. All the way to now. What's the underlying theme? I think the real question is, did God have to? Did God have to? And the answer is no. But why did he? Because God is. Did God have to? No. But why did he? Because God is. God is a humble God. And so he condescended to us, knowing even better than us how evil we are. In his humility, 
he goes beyond what anyone could have ever expected or imagined. And not just covers himself, he covers us. He didn't owe a single drop, and yet he even covered what Peter owed. Jesus, in his great humility, goes to the cross and gives his, ran- his life as a ransom for many. Some of you that grew up in the church will think that I mean to use the word love when I say Jesus, in his great humility, goes to the cross and gives his life as a ransom for many. And yes, Jesus shows us what true love is. Love is humble. This is the God that we serve. We didn't deserve this kind of grace, not by a long shot. We deserve the complete opposite of what we received. We were dead. Dead people don't cry out, come save me. Dead people are dead. But God, in his great love for us, let me just read you the verse. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just make us alive. He raises us up. How far does he raise us up? It says here, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He not only brings us back to life, but he gives us so much more than we ever deserve. All the way up to where he is. That preeminent glory that he showed the disciples. He's like, I want you there with me. He came down so that we could be lifted up. That's humility. That's the kind of love God is showing us. And he is the one that we place our faith in. He came down so that we could be lifted up. That's the humble God we serve. And when we say in our testimony, this is our gospel, what do we have? We have Christ. That is the thing that we have. We have Christ. That is our testimony. That is our proclamation. This is what we espouse, not just in the the preaching of the word, but the songs that we sing, the creeds that we say together. This is a glorious thing that we're saying. We're not saying we have Christ. There's a million dollars here. There's a nice car here. There's a nice house here. No, we are saying Scoobal on garbage because we have Christ. That's the highest thing anybody could have ever earned. We can't earn it because that's only for God. And he gives it to us. He came down so that we could be lifted up. And he is the one who we place our faith in. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.